Finance and History. The EABH Podcast. Looking for precedents from the exciting world of financial history. Follow us on bankinghistory.org. Hello and welcome everybody to this episode of Finance and History, the podcast of the European Association for Banking and Financial History. My name is Carmen Hoffman, and today I'm going to talk to Sarah Quincy, who is an assistant professor of economics at Vanderbilt University. That's in Nashville, Tennessee, right? Yes, Music City, USA. That's right. <laughs> okay. So it's firstly Music City, but secondly, you're there for uh, financial history. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about a paper you've written that's called Credit, Crisis and Recovery in the Great Depression. The Great Depression remains the largest financial crisis in American history and probably financial historians' most preferred period. Why shall we talk about it yet another time? I think that's exactly what my students usually say, you know, because it was a long time ago. Why do we need to go back to it? Isn't it all settled? And I think the funny thing is, even though we've been talking about it basically since it happened, so it's been like 90 years, we're still figuring new things out. And so as a financial historian, it's a way to think about, firstly, the debates of the, of the day, right? You could kind of see the evolution of policy and thought by looking through the papers that people have written about the Great Depression. But the other thing is that for a long time, this was the only financial crisis we had to sort of think about issues around what banks do to the economy and vice versa. So it's always important as an economist to think carefully about why is it something's happening? Is it a reaction? Or is it the cause, the sort of classic chicken and egg problem? And so financial historians have returned to the well a lot of times with the Great Depression to think about very carefully what's the chicken and what's the egg in this scenario. So today, what we're going to be talking about is what are the specific kinds of banks that helped or hurt local economies during a financial crisis? So this is something that reflects previous work but is a little bit different because as we've kind of gone further in time away from the Great Depression, we've collected more and more data and scholars have gone into more and more archives. And we've thought about not just what happens on a, on a national level or a state level, but what's happening in a county, what's happening in a city. And today what we're going to be doing is, is talking a little bit about how the reactions of individual banking offices and individual workers can explain the differences we see in local economies' reactions to something that's going on around them. So this is something that's very much motivated by the Great Recession and the debates that have been gone on since the Great Recession, but thinking about it in the context uh, of the 1930s. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, interesting uh, point of view to think of it like is this this crisis that seems to get better and better the more you look at it because you collect more and more information so you can even you know change your perspective a lot and this idea of recession and recovery is something that has been talked about a lot after 2007 but as well in in recent months and weeks that's on economists minds so it's very good timing for a paper like this to be discussed you talk about the new sources and new archives to explore so Would you like to tell us a little bit about what's new with your sources? Which are your archives and what makes your collection of data special? Yeah, absolutely. I kind of want to set the scene a little bit because I feel very much indebted to, to people who have worked on these things before me. So as economists and as historians, we're always trying to think about kind of what's the right tool for the job. And in my case, what I'm really interested in understanding is how differences in who gets credit and where there's credit affects the overall economy. So that motivates needing to think about the distribution of financial resources across space. And it also means that you want to think really carefully about 
who are the people who are changing what they're doing and thinking about something called reallocation or sort of the movement of people or or funds around. Uh, And so this means that you need to not only know what's happening at a national level or a state level or a county level, but you want to think about things maybe at a city or banking office level. So you always want to have a reason. We always call it like proof of concept to think a little bit about why I need to go somewhere and find a new thing. Why not take work people have already already done and modify it for your question? So in my case, the archives I was spending a lot of time in, it was a lot of time uh, searching for things that didn't exist. (laughs) So I spent a lot of time looking for city level records. And the reason this was important for me is that California is a big state. California is the subject of the study. Cities are very spread out which means that, you know, instead of thinking about being able to go to the neighboring town relatively easily, you're talking about a commitment to traveling a long distance. So cities aren't necessarily experiencing the same kinds of changes in their local conditions in a way that grouping things at a higher level of geography, for example, would would get you to. So I spent a lot of time searching for city level records to try to understand how are cities experiencing the Great Depression? Is it the same within a county? Is it the same everywhere in the state outside of the big urban areas? And the answer turned out to be no. So as a result of that, I spent a lot of time poking around. And in doing so, I was able to find not only city level records, but banking office records. And so what that lets me do is not only think about cities' reaction to the uncertainty of the Great Depression, but differences in what individual banks and offices of banks are doing in response to the Great Depression. So you cannot just think about what do big banks do differently than small banks, for example, which is sort of part of the goal of the study, but also what are offices of big banks doing that are different than small banks in the same location. That was very exciting. I ran out of my office when I found these and like knocked on doors and was like, hey, everyone, I found a thing. But the upside of this really comes from the fact that previous work has really identified that you need to think really carefully about all of the different competitors in a market. And then you want to think about how the pieces of the sort of economic puzzle fit together, not just in terms of cities, but sort of to your question, um, how do we think about farmers? How do we think about manufacturing workers? How do we think about all these different kinds of people who are able to move across cities in response to these things, changing the environment they're in? So that's a long-winded answer to a question about archives, but I think no historian could ever answer a question quickly when it comes to archives. <laughs> we love archives too at EABH, so that's kind of the right place to, <laughs> to do that. As, as you said, your story is basically a story about who gets credit and why that matters to all of us. But moreover, though, As you hinted, you tell the story of Bank of America and more precisely the story of one bank maneuvering more successfully than others through the turbulent waters of the Great Depression, while at the same time doing good to its customers and its locations, so the the areas where it had branches. So is that a banking fairy tale come true? You want to set the stage here as well and tell us who is Bank of America And famously, who is A.P. Giannini, um, the founder or the CEO of the bank? And following this, I mean, how did bank branching rise with Bank of America? And how did that set aside or set apart California from the rest of America during the Great Depression, right? So the first thing I want to say is the bank we think of now as Bank of America 
has its roots in California. So one way in which the United States was very different than other highly developed countries in the start of the Great Depression was that most of our banks were very small. So we call them unit banks. It just means they have one office in one location. In the U.S., there's sort of been this historical resistance to having large banks. And so as a result, in the U.S., most states had laws that said a bank can have one location. In California, there was a loophole in a law that was passed in 1909. So we had a panic. Well, it's California. There was an earthquake, a fire, and then a panic. But in the U.S., there was a panic in 1907, 1906 and 1907. And in reaction, the state was like, oh, no, we need new banking laws. And they put a little loophole in there. And they said, look, we don't really like the idea of banks having multiple offices, but we neglected to say this before. And there's like one bank that says maybe we could have offices in multiple locations. We don't want to take opportunities with that bank. So look, we're not going to really pass any laws on that front. So California had this loophole, but nobody was taking them up on this idea of having multiple offices. So at the time, people not only thought of bank branching as something that was un-American, but they thought it was maybe dangerous, right? They thought there was actually a way to destabilize local economies. And so what happened is that this bank opened in San Francisco before the earthquake and the fire and all of that, but they see this law and they see this loophole and they hear people like Woodrow Wilson, who was about to become president of the United States, saying, you know, other countries do this thing. We don't. What do we, what do, we do? How come we don't do that? And so A.P. Giannini, who's the founder of this bank, who was not a banker by trade, he was a produce merchant, but he started a bank, said, well, why don't we do this? And so they see this loophole and start coming up with ways to work around the law itself in order to open new bank branches. It's a long-winded way of saying this, but they see what the proverbial dollar on the sidewalk, right? There's an opportunity that people haven't seized. And so the organization of Bank of America starts opening bank branches. And there's tremendous resistance to this at the time, both within the state, but (laughs) across the country. And that's actually how the name Bank of America kind of got picked. It was initially founded as Bank of Italy. A.P. Giannini was the son of Italian immigrants. And people were like, oh, not only is the idea of branching un-American, but this Bank of Italy is the bank that's trying to open these branches. And so what they did is they, uh, people in these towns were resistant to this bank coming in. And uh, they would say things like, oh, Bank of Italy, they must be an agent of the Pope or the Vatican because they're trying to take our resources and somehow fund Catholicism with it. I don't think that was true. But there was resistance to this idea. And so they ended up with the name Bank of America to sort of signal that this is an American-owned institution, but also as a, a sign of ambition. Say, we are going to be a bank that is everywhere in America. We're staking our claim on this. You are asking, how did bank branching rise with Bank of America? You can imagine there's this loophole in this law where Bank of America realizes, A.P. Giannini, the founder of the bank, realizes there's a way to open banks in multiple locations. Some people... Woodrow Wilson would say that might be a good idea. And so what they did is they basically drove around the state of California, trying to buy as many banks as they could. And then they would have to go to the the regulators and say, can we turn this in to an office of our bank? And the regulators were typically their competitors. And their competitors would be like, gee, I don't know if I want this big, ambitious bank coming in. I just don't know that that's a great idea for me. But that was enough. So there was this push and pull between this very ambitious bank and competitors. So 
it's sort of a fascinating story. It's very dramatic. There's lots of pettiness and gossip and backstabbing and backbiting. But despite the the sort of forces arrayed against the sort of the rise of bank branching, Bank of America is in roughly half the cities in California in 1929. So this this is a story of persistence. And as you said, they're maneuvering through these, these turbulent waters. I don't know that I would call it a banking fairy tale because I really do think this is a story of someone realizing there are tremendous profits to be made by serving people who don't have access otherwise to a bank and sort of seizing the rents from that. So I think there's some sort of philanthropic serving of populations that are excluded otherwise from financial institutions. But it's also important to remember that this is a way to grow your business when other businesses are already established. I mean, your paper is called The Loans for the Little Fellow. And I found a quote of the founder, Mr. Giannini, where he says that he wants to aid all functions of business, which, of course, it sounds very socially conscious. But as well, I think he was very well aware of his own profit to be made. Perhaps you could tell us more about the, the actual connection between Bank of America's strategy during the Great Depression and how that benefited the little fellow and how it did exactly the opposite of what everybody was anticipating, right? Because the argument was, oh, this will be bad for local communities, this will be bad for local economies. But on the contrary, it proved to be very good for everybody, right? Yes, you could think of maybe the little fellow or aiding all functions of business as, as you say, maybe as a, it's good public relations. There's a group of people who think it would be great to have access to a bank. And there's a group of people who govern locations access to banks. Those aren't the same groups. And you need to kind of persuade people that your newfangled idea of having all of these different locations will benefit them. That's the loophole that these banks have to be operating for public convenience and advantage is the phrase. So Bank of America, for a lot of reasons, they end up roughly half the cities in California, the start of the depression. There are other branch networks in the 1920s in California who say, oh, geez, you can open up all these different locations, huh? And so there are some, there are some clusters of offices held in the same network around Los Angeles and around San Francisco, but nobody else is operating across the whole state. So one of the reasons this is going to be particularly helpful for Bank of America when we have this terrible financial crisis that we call the Great Depression, is that they're able to move money around their offices, which turns out to be the whole state. So <laughs> California is a big state. And so that's, that's great because one of the things people worry about when it comes to really small banks is that if something really bad happens, say an earthquake, a flood, a fire, everybody in the town has tied their wealth into one bank that is using their deposits to make loans. Well, now, maybe because of a natural disaster or something else, those funds are gone. We made a loan to someone to buy a house. The house has been wiped away in the flood. The value of those deposits are gone because it was tied to the value of a house that no longer has value. And so what a, a branch bank can do is move money around and sort of take money from one location and lend it elsewhere. So opponents of bank branching said, okay, all they're going to do is take money from small farm towns and lend it to people in San Francisco or people in Los Angeles. So there's no real difference between a, a branch bank and a unit bank in terms of saving, insuring against these kinds of local shocks, because all they're really doing is taking deposits away. What ends up happening in the case of Bank of America unlike these other regional banks, I use archival evidence to show this, is they actually use their, what we call internal capital markets to keep lending alive at their different locations. So they actually do this thing 
where they insure their branches across the state against the fear of people running to the bank and demanding their money back. So I have a favorite story, I think, to sort of make this concrete. In 1933, the banking crisis was intensifying all over the United States. And in part of California, they grow a lot of rice. So not only were they worried about this overall crisis, things are getting worse, things are getting worse, the rice crop is destroyed. And so people start running to the bank to say, look, I have to get my money out before anyone else does. Because what banks do, right, is they take your deposits and they lend them out to other people. Well, if all those loans had been made on rice crops, that money's gone right? Your deposits no longer exist. You've lost your wealth. So I have to get to the bank before you in case there's a little bit of money left in that vault. This is what we think of as a bank run. So there's news that the rice crop is in trouble in Sacramento. And it's about 80 miles. It's about an hour and a half drive from Sacramento to San Francisco. And the branch manager, Bank of America, calls up San Francisco and he says, look, people are getting worried. We're worried about a bank run here. There's a storm going on. We got to fly money over there. This is a real problem. No professional pilots will fly the money there. They find someone who is a hobby pilot and they give him millions of dollars of gold to put into his airplane. And for whatever reason, they found an honest hobby pilot. He flew the money, the 80 miles from San Francisco to Sacramento, and they unloaded all of this gold from the Bank of America at their branch in Sacramento. And that kept people feeling, okay, my money is safe. I don't have millions of dollars. (laughs) This is more money than I have. I'm safe. And it dissipates the bank run. So when we think about what a branch bank can do, this is like the good example. This is them using what we're calling internal capital markets to move money around to sort of keep people from freaking out, insuring against these kinds of local shocks, which can be really devastating to to a unit bank. You can imagine then what does a branch bank do? It's kind of like they find a really honest hobby pilot all the time and they're moving money around within the bank which allows them, one, to to make loans, but two, it keeps depositors sort of cautious but not worried about the safety of their own wealth. And so what does Let Bank of America do? They're the I show that they're the only bank that's really doing this. The other sort of smaller regional banks don't do that, is it lets them keep lending on real estate. So they keep mortgages available that they started in 1929, probably, on the books at all of their different branches. So instead of telling people you have to pay for your house now, they allow those people to continue to pay off their loans over a longer period, which as you can imagine, right? Houses are expensive and they're a big ticket item. It lets people continue to consume. So this is a case where sort of giving out loans to the little fellow, right, actually benefited these these locations through this commitment to continuing to lend across the state and being very secure in this idea of, you know, come what may, we will find a pilot to fly the money out or a driver. They used a lot of limousines for this too. And we will drive gold to wherever it needs to go, which will let us avoid these problems of sort of local panics and continue to make money available to locations across the state. I mean, it sounds like a very American story to me. It's very good for promotional purposes. I can totally envision the limousine with the gold. And I mean, they probably shouldn't attempt to fly the gold for reasons of being very heavy but it was very smart business after all because all of these businesses paid off so big after so related to this i, I read in your paper another quote from this um, ceo that real estate loans are sound saving banks practice because mortgage lending is the backbone of the country so that's what he said in the 1930s about exactly this this practice you just described so in today's world and after everything that happened after 2007 What would you make of this statement? 
So I always think that the funny thing about talking about mortgages and Bank of America is exactly what you just laid out, right? How do we think about this big bank making real estate loans around the onset of a financial crisis as a safe or beneficial idea? It's a story about um, knowing your borrower. So this idea, as we were talking about, of loans for the little fellow was accompanied in the Bank of America handbook at the time with the phrase, character is the best basis for credit. So one of the things to remember is that people are coming in to ask for these loans and they're conducting interviews and they're local people in each of these banks, regardless if it's Bank of America or not, who are evaluating these loans and deciding should we make the mortgage or not, which is very different than I think what we think of as big banks doing their mortgage lending now, which tends to be at arm's length. So these are people who are are reacting with a lot of information. But the other thing is that, but it's accompanied by like a fundamental conservativeness when it comes to bank lending. So they're lending on mortgages, but they're also holding a lot of treasury bonds, which is a relatively safe investment to make. And they're not lending on some of the big, risky, potentially profitable industries of the 1920s. So they're not lending to people who are discovering oil. They're not lending to people who are trying to build uh, apartment buildings in Los Angeles, which was a big boom and bust thing going on in the 20s. And when they lend on sort of new industries like the movies, the Bank of America financed movies like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and, and Gone with the Wind, they're asking for a lot in return. So there's this different evaluation of risk that's going on where, yes, they're making mortgages available to people who maybe were excluded otherwise from financial markets. They're offering these relatively low interest rates, but they're not participating in some of these other kinds of activities, these other kinds of financial innovation, because they've already made a choice. So they're insuring themselves by holding treasury bonds and staying away from oil or cotton or construction and instead making this choice. So I always think of it as sort of small C conservative, right? That this idea of sort of evaluating risk and and coming up with a business model is a little bit different than I think we would think of now. So mortgage lending was sound practice because the rest of their practices were sound. So Walt Disney was a client of Bank of America, and I think he would say they were pretty exacting in what they required from their borrowers. He famously was upset with them after 1940 because of uh, how on time they wanted his loan payments to be. I find that very interesting from a risk management perspective, because it in a way, it, it sounds like the, the opposite of what happened in 2007, where everybody was just looking at the total amount and, and was treating these exactly the same kind of products as like one conglomerate. Nobody looking at the individual loans. Well, this seems like the, the opposite approach that you start from the basis. You know all your individual small little pieces of it, and, and that makes like the big pool of things you can profit from. So it's a bit like from the bottom up. So. Do you see any any lessons for for mortgage banking or or bank branching today? What would you see there that could be an inspiration for today's policymakers or bankers? So one of the things I think is also, as you say, there's a sort of bottom-up approach to evaluating loans. But the other thing that's kind of, that always strikes me when comparing the two financial crises is that Bank of America was being regulated by skeptical hostile regulators. These are people who did not trust the thing Bank of America was trying in the 1920s and 1930s. And so they needed to be able to go to their books and justify every single thing they were doing because regulators were not willing to take them on their word. 
So it's an interesting example of sort of regulatory oversight, but also internal oversight, because the bank knew that regulators were looking for an excuse not to consider them sort of a safe bank. But at the same time, I I mean, there is a similarity, and I haven't mentioned this, but in March of 1933, they close all the banks in the United States for a holiday, and they have to certify, the, the, the regulators certify to reopen each bank. And the reason they do this is because people had lost faith in the safety of their financial institutions. So A.P. Giannini, who at the time was like good friends with FDR, that doesn't last for very long. He and Roosevelt sort of have a falling out later. Giannini was a a supporter of Mussolini, which you might imagine Roosevelt does not end up being a supporter of Mussolini. So they're trying to decide, are we going to open Bank of America back up? What are we going to do in California? And there are these records that the historians of Bank of America have found where it turns out, like, how do they decide to reopen Bank of America? How do they decide to do this? They decide that if they don't reopen Bank of America, no bank in California will be safe. So there was this sort of too big to fail thing going on where they knew that the California economy was exposed to Bank of America's safety and perceived safety in a way that maybe a single unit bank wasn't. So in my head, there's this sort of interesting contradiction between this careful lending that Bank of America was doing in response to sort of skeptical regulators and this crucial moment of regulators saying, look, if we don't open these guys, we're going to lose state in terms of thinking about banking security. So there is a parallel to the Great Recession in that way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting parallels to be taken from this one example of this one bank and the way in which you look at the, the different topics, actually, that, that can be shown. I, I thought it was very interesting. I mean, you make a point as well where you say that the presence of Bank of America in, in a region or in a city made up for higher education or um, what was the thing Bank of America brought to the region? You know, we were talking a little bit about why do we keep coming back to the Great Depression? I think to me, one of the things that was really striking as I started working on this as a graduate student is we've spilled a lot of ink thinking about 1929 to 1933. Why did the Great Depression start? Why were banks failing, right? These are important questions because we don't want to have this happen again. But the question of why is it, we see this not just in the Great Depression, but across lots of countries and lots of time periods, that periods of banking instability are associated with more severe recessions and slower recoveries, economic recoveries afterwards, the sort of a standard recession. So if you were to compare even the COVID crisis to the Great Recession or the Great Depression, we actually are back up, up at trend growth or around trend growth now and have sort of, quote unquote, made up in some ways our economic contraction from 2020. It took much longer for that to happen after 2007. And the 1930s are in some ways sort of a, depending on who you ask, a lost decade of of, of economic growth because of how severe the crisis was and how slow the return to full employment was. And so sort of the first part of this paper is trying to understand this unusual bank. Who are they? Where are they going? What are they doing? They ended up in a kind of an odd selection of cities in California, and then they they move money around to keep these long-term loans available to households. And so the second half of the paper is trying to understand what that did to cities with Bank of America branches compared to other California cities. And what I find is that having access to this bank that continues to lend in these locations softens the blow of, of the recession. So cities with Bank of America branches 
have smaller contractions in property values during the crisis itself, start their recovery sooner, and have stronger recoveries through 1940 than cities that don't have a Bank of America branch, which was a little bit surprising because these cities are the same in terms of their growth before the onset of the crisis. So bank branching isn't changing local economies except for during the crisis when money is being moved around and lending is continuing to happen with Bank of America branches. So having mortgage credit around seems to sort of ensure local economies from this overall crisis. And so what I do in the last part of, of the paper is I follow workers over time. So one of the things we can do now as economic historians is follow workers from one census, which happens in the U.S. every 10 years, to another one. So you get to follow people's occupational and locational choices over time. You can see things like home value or income. So lots of really interesting measures of well-being and, and sort of participation in the economy. And so what I find is that places that have a Bank of America not only have higher incomes in 1940, you know, not only are the cities themselves having these differences in property values, but incomes are higher. And what's going on is that the agricultural sector Overall, in the United States actually grows during the 1930s. There's this idea that people return to the farm for subsistence because there's no real other options. Bank of America cities, you don't see that. These are places where the farm sector is shrinking and people are instead working in services. So they're working in stores, for example, in retail. And what makes this sort of particularly striking is that these are jobs that actually are higher education jobs. So if we're trying to understand why, even in 1940, you know, the U.S. had the New Deal and spent millions and millions and millions of dollars trying to sort of level the playing field between places that had a really bad 1929 to 1933 and places that didn't. Bank of America places, places that had access to mortgage credit, likely had smaller declines in local demand during the, cr the crisis itself because people had access to their loans. So they were able to continue to spend money in their sort of day-to-day -day life and going to the store and actually buying things. And that kept these sectors alive. And we might say, okay, so cities that had credit experienced this kind of structural transformation, this, this relative growth of manufacturing and services compared to agriculture. So credit can sort of accelerate this transformation of the economy, which we think typically leads to overall growth. But then the other part of it is that this is really being driven by high education workers, that high education workers in Bank of America places work in these kinds of locally oriented jobs and, and sort of manufacturing and service jobs, not agriculture. And this creates kind of a difference in the average skill level of workers between Bank of America and non-Bank of America places. And so I show in the paper that this can explain most of the differences in incomes that we still see in 1940. It's nine log points is the difference, which is a big number. And you're like, well, if I can just go from one city to the other, why wouldn't I just go where incomes are different? I, you know, Maintained assumption of most economists is that more money is something people would prefer. And so what these results kind of bundle together is that having access to credit changes the structure of your economy in a way that insulates you from the overall crisis, but it makes it more difficult for there to be convergence, sort of a similarity of incomes across locations because this, the, the structure of the economy is different in a way that's hard to make up. So what I mean by that is if you have a Bank of America branch, you are using all of these highly educated workers to have sort of smaller agricultural sector, more manufacturing and more services. But it's not easy to magically have a high school diploma. So other cities can't just 
sort of wave a, a wand and say, okay, now we all have that education difference too. So why can't, you know, so we should just have more services in manufacturing. So that creates a wedge between these two kinds of places that is there even as the economies are recovering. And I try to argue in the paper that these differences that start in the 1929-1933 period exist longer because of these sort of educational differences of workers in these sort of modern sectors that exist in 1940. Following this, it's very easy, right? If we want to create more resilient economies and if we want local economies to catch up or if we want to raise the level of income, we have to ensure that there is credit available for everybody at all times. And I mean, I don't mean by that that you just give money to everybody who comes. I mean, following like a thorough process of checking and, and looking at whoever deserves the credit or, or should have the credit. I mean, there have been other scholars arguing that giving credit from the bottom up is the most important thing. But if it's that easy, why is that not being done all over? So the way I would respond to that is typically the first day of your first economics class. The professor says that economics is the study of the optimal allocation of scarce resources. We always know that the first solution would be to just give everyone everything because we would all be happier if we had more things. But the sort of the fun part of economics is that that's not true. We have to figure out the ways to sort of take the resources we have and best utilize them. So to your point, one way to think about this paper is to say, look, we should just give everyone credit. That's not going to happen, right? That's that we have scarce resources. Um, but what I think this paper says is that what we're thinking about how financial crises affect local economies or affect the ability of the economy to weather the storm of not having access to credit, we need to think about what's going on in the labor market at the same time. So if we have a financial crisis and people are losing access to mortgages and businesses are losing access to credit and all of these things, we need to think about what are the jobs that are being lost that one, serve local economies, provide a lot of employment and, and income to, to individual cities that are maybe being more affected by this crisis. But then also, what are the kinds of work that people are doing in those kinds of sectors? For example, people have showed in the U.S. after the Great Recession, we see a similar difference now in the, the relative size of the service sector in places that had smaller declines in mortgage lending. During the Great Recession, they had slightly more mortgages. They had a, high, a better service sector after the Great Recession, which is what, kind of what I see. And my paper would argue, so we need to pay attention to the kinds of jobs that are sort of being gained and lost. But then also, if there's this education component to the, the jobs that are being gained and lost, human capital, right? We want to think about sort of ways to help workers attain those skills and make sure that we're incentivizing workers to have those skills and to make it easy for consumers to be buying the products that would kind of make those kinds of jobs in relatively high demand. Now it doesn't sound so easy anymore. I agree very much with the way in which you say that, you know, in order for the policies or where you direct your resources to be successful, you have to look carefully of what you're really trying to achieve. So what's next with your research? Where are you headed from here? Are you staying in California? Or One of the things I'm working on now that I'm very excited about is continuing to think about where big banks in America come from, because there's a lot of scholarship as we sort of, we were talking about earlier on 1929 to 1933. And typically in sort of banking history in America, we sort of drop the thread there. Like there was this really bad thing that happened. Let's try to understand it as best we can. 
There's re- and there's some deregulation that happens in the 1930s and of the U.S. banking sector and some new regulation. And we don't really pick the thread up again until the 1970s. And so what I'm working on now is showing that a lot of the changes that we see in financial concentration in the United States start in the 1930s, that there's this deregulation that happens uh, with respect to bank branching as both the federal government and states are trying to remedy the, the losses they had during the worst parts of the financial crisis. And they allow these bank branch networks to start up in different ways. And so What I'm working on now is trying to understand where those deregulations happened and then trying to understand who are the winners and losers then of this bank deregulation, because you're allowing locations access to different kinds of bank networks now. So some of them are going to still be one office unit banks, and some of them are going to be these branch networks. But these branch networks have realized they can funnel money to specific locations. So some places are going to really benefit from this deregulation and some places are going to lose. And so what I'm working on now is is trying to trace out the effects of these Great Depression deregulation on the banking sector and and sort of the rise of of big banks, because I I think we need to think about this as happening partially, uh, not not just in the sort of the more recent time period, the sort of 1970s onward, but as a result of what happened in the Great Depression. And then trying to understand who it's benefiting and who it's not. Last question. Do you have a favorite financial history story or book? I think Barry Eichengreen's Golden Fetters. It's a Great Depression book. I promise I care about other things. <laughs> I do actually, but uh, it's just a beautifully written, argued book that combines just like this, like beautiful economics with beautiful history and writing to help us understand how the ways that policymakers think and feel constrained by sort of the options available to them, not only affects the people in those countries, but all of us. And, and I remember reading that in graduate school and going, oh, wow, these choices have consequences, but also the framing of those choices, that the way that we hold those things in our minds as we make decisions really matters. I agree. It's, it's a great book. Great closing words. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me about credit crisis and recovery. Thanks, Sarah. This was Finance and History, the EABH podcast. EABH is an independent, international non-for-profit organization that promotes research into the history of finance, policy making and the archives. Please join us as a member in order to support our work. You can find details online at bankinghistory.org.